and welcome to another episode of Green Minds. This week, I had the pleasure of interviewing Andreas Hopner. It's quite hard to succinctly introduce him because he bridges so many different spheres within the ESG space. But he is a professor of operational risk at UCD, the co-inventor of the EU Paris Aligned Benchmark, and has worked as a member of the EU Technical Expert Group on Sustainable Finance and as a member of the EU's platform on sustainable finance. Ultimately, through his wide-ranging career, he has had a front-seat view at the nexus of sustainable finance, policy and education. And so I sat down with him to really understand how policy is helping us drive sustainable change within financial markets and what is being done from a policy perspective to aid in the creation of a greener future. We chatted on conflict-free capitalism, the green taxonomy and why nuclear cannot and should not be labelled green, and our expectations on what the EU taxonomy and the platform on sustainable finance will look like in the coming years. What really came to the fore for me during our conversation was something that Robert, in our second Green Minds episode echoes really this need to understand what drives each stakeholder and how this necessarily often allows for the mislabeling and misdirection of capital. Andreas put forward the idea that the commercial intent of a stakeholder really determines the information they align with and thus, from a financial perspective, the direction that they then push capital towards. In the context of the EU sustainable finance policy arena, this is really being seen through the debate over labelling nuclear and natural gas as green activities. So I guess without further ado, let's dive in. Hi, Andreas. Welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited to dive into the world of the EU taxonomy and the broader world of frameworks and policies helping to drive a sustainable world. But I want to begin with your sustainability journey. You have one of the longest CVs I've ever seen in my life um, and your career spans academia, entrepreneurship, policy and so much more. And so I was wondering what brought you to the nexus of sustainability and finance? Uh, that one was called ethics and finance. And um, uh, I did a master's in um, mostly finance. There was one particular course on ethics and systems. Uh, it was Professor Rob Gray um, at the University of St. Andrews. And that course kind of poked all sort of loopholes in the system, which, which ain't really fair. In particular, it used the book called The Corporation and contrasted it with a book called The Company, uh, Corporation by Bakan, The Company by Miklos Wade Woodridge. Uh, both worth reading, very different views of how useful a corporation is to society. And that got me thinking. And then um, for my PhD proposal, I did then propose to look at the relationship between corporate financial performance and corporate social performance. And then when starting the PhD, I kind of realized that the corporate side um, is a lot less genuine in some cases on the social performance and the environment performance because obviously it's also harder to turn a company around than the investment side. They can pretty much pick whatever they want. So if you think of 
hundred chief investment officers, they can in a short time really put their investments into something that's actually Paris aligned and reducing emissions 7% year and year. But if you would think of hundred chief financial officers, if you happen to be chief financial officer of a company that's deeply invested right now in fossil fuels, you can take the company out, but it's not going to be a quick thing. And you will have a lot of resistance from in particular all the unions uh, on the digging and drilling. Um, so that's why I then in the first weeks of my PhD shifted from corporate social versus corporate financial performance to what at that point was called ethical investment. And so I think kind of on a similar vein to what you've been saying about ethical investing, a lot of us on the course are here because we want to use existing levers to make capitalism more sustainable and make capitalism work for us and the planet. Um, and one of the things that I noticed you say on your LinkedIn is that you're trying to push the world through your endeavours towards conflict-free capitalism. I guess, what does that look like in your view, especially when capitalism is based upon, like, to my understanding, competition and not conflict? Competition is fine. I mean, in theory, capitalism is competition for quality and capital supports the highest quality uh, solutions and the most effective and efficient means of achieving societal aims. Effective meaning doing the right thing, efficient meaning doing things right. So the problem is that in the way that the current system is structured are conflicts of interest. So that means that a pension fund wants to put capital for the right use. An insurance wants to put capital for the right use. An asset manager wants to put capital for the right use in principle. And anyone that advises, anyone who advises them has the same ambitions, trying to make a high quality decision with capital. Now the problem comes when you don't look at it from the buy side, but you look at it from the sell side. A company that is selling low quality products and services, does it want to spend years, maybe decades enhancing the quality or does it nevertheless want capital? Although it kind of knows that it ain't the best in terms of quality. Then it hires an investment banker to try to confuse the buy side and provide the company with money, although maybe they know they ain't the best use for the uh, investor or ain't the best for the planet if it's a company that's heavily polluting, for instance. And it's not only the investment banker who helps the company raise assets and in, in fact distract capital from going the highest quality pass. It's also the auditor who stems the reports. It's the credit rater who gives the credit rating against the fee. Um, anyone basically that gets paid by the company to make sure that the company receives fresh cash regardless of the quality of the company, regardless of the sustainability of the company, regardless of the diversity of the company and so forth. And so conflict-free capitalism is the idea that the problem rests on the sell side. The sell side distracts capitalism away from the uh, theoretical path that theoretically should work out, but in practice often doesn't. And so it is recognizing these very significant conflicts of interest. So to provide an example from the EU taxonomy, if large investment banks write reports, which then unsurprisingly are quite in favor of, of nuclear and gas being labeled green. Um, why? Because 
as Goldman Sachs themselves wrote on the cover of their report, they currently have clients in the industries and they're trying to get more. Well, obviously, they couldn't come to another conclusion if they're trying to get more clients. And so that is the challenge here, right? So if I am trying to sell and I operate on the sell side and I'm paid to make the company look good, it is very hard to see how systematically that can lead to any objective judgment. It can only lead to the judgment that won't compromise the commercial intent of the sell side. And these conflicts of interest are a significant portion why capitalism doesn't work for everybody and why capitalism or capital can get quite distracted, disturbed, um, misdirected. And if we can fix them and have conflict-free capitalism, or at least less conflicted capitalism, I believe that's going to be better and that's going to be fairer. And those that will have the highest quality and those who will be most effective, most efficient should get the most capital. And that then could really actually uh, lead to uh, a lot more desired outcomes than we are currently seeing. Yeah, that's super interesting. I guess speaking of, yeah, fixing, I think that sustainability frameworks are really trying to address that issue somewhat, especially within the, the like green environmental space. Um, but I do feel like the sustainable finance framework landscape is quite awash with acronyms and geographically specific frameworks and tools. And so trying to guide practitioners and thus capital towards greater sustainability is often quite complex and it's hard to navigate that landscape. So I was wondering if you could kind of touch on what the EU taxonomy is and the main intent behind it, like what, what's it trying to achieve? So the original taxonomy legislation aims to achieve a lot. It aims to scientifically code which activities are green on one of six environmental objectives, these environmental objectives being um, uh, climate change mitigation, climate change adaptation, uh, water, um, biodiversity, pollution prevention and circular economy. And so you have to be making a substantial contribution to one of to achieving one of these objectives while not doing any significant harm on any of the other five. So technically speaking, it is an equal weighted framework in terms of the environmental objectives. And that in turn means that climate change mitigation means exactly as much as circular economy. And so from that backdrop, the technical expert group first, and then subsequently now the platform for sustainable finance, coded a whole range of activities in the European Union's NACE activity classification system or sector classification system to then eventually um, put forward a, a green taxonomy, as it's referred to, that differentiates green activities from other green activities and green activities they are in the relevant they're in the relevant sectors, so they're eligible. Number one, they make a substantial contribution to meeting one of these environmental objectives. Number two, they don't do significant harm to any of the other five objectives. Number three, and they apply minimum social safeguards, meaning they don't actually um, uh, cause any significant societal issues. Number four, and so in that context, if you want so. Um, uh, we're, we're finding 
ourselves and coding these activities. And it's it's quite strict, not necessarily that many activities make it or not necessarily that many activities operated by nowadays corporations because they might have cut a corner here and there and can't necessarily yet prove that they don't have significant harm. And that part of the taxonomy called Delegated Act 1 has become effective uh, January 1st in 2022. But then there was significant desire by all sorts of other activities to also be seen green. So the notion of green wasn't seen necessarily as environment friendly. It became basically just seen as legitimate. If I'm not green, I will struggle to get financing. And so right now there is a proposal for a Delegated Act 2 that, for instance, wants to declare the majority of gas and nuclear green. And the platform for sustainable finance responded to the proposal and put forward scientific analysis quite clearly showing that the gas proposal isn't green. It's not even amber, as we call it, it's red. And so the politicians don't really care for it. They say, okay, investors don't have to follow the green taxonomy. And on the nuclear side, there isn't a single facility anywhere in Europe that actually is a permanent nuclear waste disposal facility. There are only temporary ones. And so without any data, the technical expert concluded it couldn't judge. Uh, 13 authors from the JRC, 10 uh, men and three women, they were happy enough to judge. And they effectively judged that although they didn't really say that nuclear was safe enough for the taxonomy per se, they did say that the challenge of uh, permanently storing nuclear waste has uh, quite some similarities with the challenge of permanently storing carbon in terms of carbon capture and storage. And that because carbon storage was included in the taxonomy, that would mean that nuclear could also be included in the taxonomy. That's not really an absolute judgment, that's a relative judgment. And that also doesn't really use the precautionary principle. I mean, that similar is a huge similar assumption on nuclear waste and carbon. Um, and so we, as a technical expert group, were instructed to use the precautionary principle and be strictly anti-greenwashing um, and make absolute judgments. But these 13 authors made a relative judgment and the politicians or certain politicians, in particular Macron, loved it um, and pushed it further along uh, to, to get it possibly uh, stamped green, which then now in turn means that the word green doesn't really mean what the word green used to mean. I guess to almost expand on that, because so a lot of the conversations that we're having both on the podcast, but within our university lectures are kind of centered around nuclear being an absolutely necessary part of our energy mix as we attempt to transition to net zero, just purely from the standpoint of renewables aren't like we can't rely on renewables that heavily at the minute because sometimes the sun doesn't shine sometimes the wind doesn't blow etc an argument that I'm sure you've had and so I guess to our understanding we would we would look at it and say yeah of course um, nuclear should be a, a green activity within the platform for sustainable finance but what and then even as you begin to research further it's like maybe geographically it's like more complex and so you can't label nuclear as as green or not green because it's geographically dependent i was wondering if you could maybe go a little bit deeper into perhaps highlighting why you think nuclear can't be green notably is green not climate friendly 
Mm-hmm. So nuclear is part of the Paris Line benchmarks and the climate transition benchmarks in the UN. There's never been a debate about this. I call it the developments of the benchmarks and perfectly happy to have them in there. So from a pure climate perspective, nuclear is fine. Mm-hmm. The framework for facilitating sustainable investments, as the Green Taxonomy is formally called, however, has six eco-weighted environmental objectives of which climate change mitigation is only one and pollution prevention is another. And they're eco-weighted. Now, you can say, should they ever have been eco-weighted? That's a fair debate to be had. And it's not clear that the average European Union citizen would think that circular economy at this stage is exactly as important as climate change mitigation, or even climate change adaptation may not be as important as climate change mitigation. So that's a fair enough debate. But the level one legislation that even the European Commission has to follow, otherwise Austria and Luxembourg can and will sue them in the European Court for this particular decision, um, clearly says we have six eco-weighted environmental objectives and you are not allowed to do significant harm on any of the other. Nuclear waste disposal, permanent, has never been successfully managed anywhere in the world. The first nuclear waste disposal facility, permanent, uh, is expected middle of this decade in Finland. So it doesn't exist. There's no data on this. So anyone saying that I know that will be safe is taking a leap of faith. And the platform is instructed to follow the precautionary principles. So not just to take a leap of faith, but actually wait for the data. So in that sense, on the nuclear waste question, from a data science perspective, we should probably decide about 2050 when we at least have 25 years of data. That's nothing in nuclear terms. Nuclear waste is radioactive for thousands of years. And, of course, nuclear is not only about the uh, physics of it, it's also very much about a stakeholder management, right? Will stakeholders be happy every time there's more nuclear waste delivered to the permanent facility? Will this impact the property prices in the region negatively, right? I mean, how many people want to move close to a nuclear waste permanent storage facility? Um, All these questions. Will politics be stable enough, even in Finland, to keep that nuclear waste permanent facility really there for hundreds of years? All of these questions are entirely unresolved. And right now, in the current proposal, we find ourselves in a situation that if Tesla would wish to build another battery factory in the desert of Nevada, they, to confirm that they don't do significant harm, would have to have a water risk report. They would have to have a metrics in this water risk report and a stakeholder consultation. All of that would be required. Otherwise, Tesla would not be considered green because it would be seen to do significant harm. Now, nuclear facilities, would just walk through with no more than a one-year controversy spring? That doesn't seem fair and balanced at all, right? Mm-hmm. So the whole logic of having a do no significant harm screen is very hard to actually communicate if nuclear doesn't have very, very significant considerations to prove that it doesn't possibly do any significant harm anywhere. And that is before you consider minimum social safeguards where to date, and I've discussed this with a lot of nuclear proponents, there's not a single nuclear proponent, including those working in the nuclear insurance industry, that can point me to a single nuclear facility whose insurance coverage sums, so the money paid out to society in case something goes wrong, is even 5% of the cost of Fukushima Daiichi. So that, in essence, means that nuclear is a giant moral habit. Nuclear, in short, means bonuses for managers, Profits for shareholders, notably a big shareholder of nuclear as the French government, and risks for the people. And of course, not only the French people, so okay, the French government is a shareholder and the French people take the risk, 
that balances, but of course also the Belgian people, Luxembourg people, German people, Spanish people, and so forth. So not surprising that countries like Belgium, Luxembourg, Germany, or Spain bordering France don't really understand why they should take a significant risk or why the benefit is only there for France. Um, that's quite an issue. Yeah, well, that's honestly one of the most balanced yeah, understandings of nuclear that, that I have had. And it's definitely, it definitely takes into account long-termism, which is, is absolutely necessary. So you were talking and you slightly touched upon this idea of do no significant harm, which is quite prevalent within um, the Paris Aligned Benchmark, which is one of the tools created by the uh, EU technical expert group just to facilitate sustainable investing and push corporates and finance towards greater sustainability. I was wondering for those of us who aren't super familiar with it, could you explain in a nutshell what the benchmark seeks to achieve? The benchmark simply seeks to take the IPCC's 1.5 degree trajectory and turn that into an investment structure. So you have to decarbonize the parasite benchmark 50% from the start, excluding any company that has more than 1% revenue from coal, more than 10% revenue from oil, more than 50% revenue from um, gas, and more than 50% from electricity generation with an average of above 100 grams of CO2 equivalent per kilowatt. And then, year on year, the index has to get better. So it's like a real diet. We all know if we have a diet, we need to have a good diet plan, but we also simply have to have the discipline to diet year on year and get better and better and better. And that's is what Paris Line Benchmark used to achieve. They have these exclusions as mentioned, and on the company level, so that's why they're very different from the taxonomy. Taxonomy is exclusions on the activity level in terms of DNSH. Um, the benchmarks have do no significant harm at the company level. So if a company is seen to do significant harm, then it may be excluded from it, but that is in the eyes of the asset manager or uh, index benchmark administrator running the actual benchmark. So yeah, touching on this idea of do no significant harm, it seems to me that it's quite hard to understand what that entails on a case by case basis. And that if I was an investor trying to use it as a screening tool for my um, index, that, that that would be quite hard, especially given where ESG data is at the minute and how non-robust it is at times. Um, and so I was wondering, how how do you maintain a feature as nuanced as do no, do no significant harm? So so on the benchmark side, it is just a controversy screen, right? It's on mm -hmm. a company level, not on activity level. Yeah. So in that sense, it's a controversy screen, a bit more than that. It's just individual criteria, but it's a subjective judgment. It's like the do no significant harm of the Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation, SFRD, company do no significant harm, not activity. On the taxonomy, it's activity do no significant harm, but there you have the big advantage that the main use case for activity do no significant harm is not portfolio screening, but is actually the issuance of a new financing security, so issuance of a new bond or a new loan. So on a case-by-case -case basis, do no significant harm is easy, but on a screening basis is difficult, but that's why this, those investment processes that screen or for across thousands of companies, they apply do not significant harm at the company level, not at the activity level. 
So Jamie and I and Alec, we began this year by asking all of the people who's, who we interviewed for the podcast to kind of map out what they thought 2022 would look like in terms of the ESG space. And so I'd like to conclude by perhaps asking you a more specific question of how do you think that the EU taxonomy and the platform on sustainable finance will evolve this year and also in the coming years? And are you hopeful for it as a framework for facilitating greater sustainability? Okay, so so uh, the the high level expert, sorry, I should start a different point. The, the action plan of the Commission, designed by the high level expert group, and then turned into various aspects, including benchmarks. Overall, that's working really well. So SFDR Paris Line benchmarks are fantastic. They're rocking and rolling. Investors use it, and they get a lot better. They get absolutely sustainable, not just relatively sustainable. So that's fantastic. So the overall credentials of the process are brilliant. Um, double materiality, another thing pushed by the tech in this disclosure report, also a lot more popular now. So that worked very well as well. The green taxonomy itself is really struggling and a significant risk of becoming a martyr in essence. Why do I refer to it as a martyr? Because all the attention that the green taxonomy took on it, led to a lot of the actual counter lobbying, and that's been enormous. Um, it also led to a lot of parties that previously claimed that they were reasonably green showing their hands. I mean, who would have thought that countries like France, Finland, Sweden voted against the first delegated act of the green taxonomy. So clearly showing they ain't that interested in green. Um, that three, four years ago would have been unusual, uh, or at least unexpected. So the green taxonomy really highlighted which countries in Europe are clearly on the green line, and this is four in particular, Spain, Denmark, Austria, and Luxembourg. Uh, Ireland is also pretty good. Germany and Belgium have been on balance on the good side as well, but that's the seven countries that, that fought the green side. Um, France most notably consistently fighting the brown side, and likewise, uh, Finland and Sweden have been very, very disappointing. And if you, for instance, look at the biodiversity ratings, uh, you see that these ratings have been disappointing already for a while. Um, so it, it forced everybody to show the hands. And now we're seeing that the political process is struggling on the second level, so on the operational details, now just basically writing its own um, rather greenwash delegated act uh, with gas and, and nuclear included in it largely to help Macron win his re-election, which of course I'm no expert, but I would have thought would have been relatively easy anyway. Um, and that will then lead that the European court will eventually decide if that second taxonomy is green or not. Um, there'll be a test for the courts. I'm very hopeful that Austria and Luxembourg, if they argue the right way will win this because technological neutrality in particular on the gas side is extremely hard to see and is blatantly broken if everybody else runs on 100 gram of CO2 equivalent per kilowatt hour but gas can run on 270 uh, or even 550 kilo when it comes to capacity. Um, so I think we will see the green taxonomy fight continuing. I think the topic of greenwashing is massively elevated and of course here at UCD we're 
we're basically looking at greenwash as the central research topic. And um, the biggest greenwash ever is not Dieselgate anymore, now it's Taxonomy Gate. Um, and so I think we'll, we'll learn from it and over time we'll come out stronger and many, many players had to show his hand or their hands in that sense. And um, that's good. And to any student uh, or anyone listening to this, when you look for jobs, do consider that on the buy side they pay you for quality and the sell side they pay you for entertainment and to an extent greenwashing. So many people on the sell side struggle with this emotionally and, and rightfully so. I mean, I've spoken to people on the sell side that were forced by the institutions to go and give TV interviews on topics they didn't believe in just because that's what it took to do the job. So people have to know if they want that. Obviously, I recommend you to try to get a job, but if you have an offer from the sell side and one from the buy side, then I strongly recommend you pick the buy side one. Um, and that's in essence where we are. And anyone going out there thinking they can set up a great sustainability initiative financed by companies, just be very much aware. The more you depend on corporate financing, and I mean corporate here, um, not financials, but non-financial corporates, the harder it will be to be authentically sustainable. And pretty much any initiative has seen that. Um, yeah, so I think we can solve this problem with data science, with uh, buy-side power. Uh, buy-side actors don't have four-year re-election cycles and are constantly on election campaigns. So they have a long-term framework. And we have another 29 years or so to go. So. Uh, Let's aim to get there. Kind of touching on this, we only have 29 years to go. Do you think that the world really needs a global taxonomy versus an EU-specific taxonomy? Because it seems to me that nations and groups of nations are moving at very different paces in this race to net zero, but also race to incorporating greater sustainability within um, capital movement. And so, yeah, do you think that that is something that we need to necessarily have a wider geographical focus? The world already has a global taxonomy, and that's called the Paris Agreement. So for climate, that exists. Mm -hmm. And we've written a paper recently for the United Nations uh, Department of Economic and Social Affairs on how you could get taxonomies interoperable. Mm -hmm. And we have a clear view that that would have to be based on KPIs rather than based on economic activities because economic activity classifications differ between every region and the politics of them are very different. Everybody will try to get their own pet industry better placed than someone else. While in contrast, we all agree on KPIs. We all agree on CO2 equivalent, the equivalent computer with global warming potential 100. That's what makes the Paris Agreement possible. So in the same way that we have an IPCC recommending effectively a falling curves on CO2 equivalent emissions, we should be trying to get, for instance, rising curves on uh, gender uh, among top executives in particular, but also on the board, or rising curves on education levels. So the key thing is that will be better year on year, and that we're actually making progress rather than talking about it and putting marketing material out of what may happen if we're lucky in 20 years. We need to get better year on year on pretty much all the SDGs. And so KPI specific global agreements, call them taxonomies or otherwise, 
I believe that's absolutely possible. But we have to start from the science, not from the activity classifications of regions, because they are already political in the way that they have been designed. They don't match to each other. And inevitably, there will be politics around which activity gets a slightly easier right than another. Let me close by providing a context here and, and an analogy. When we're looking at countries, we are very clear that those countries that contribute at least to the climate change problem will get most time before they need to start decarbonizing. So emerging markets, frontier markets are going to get more time than developed markets, and we're pretty much all agreed on that. For some reason, when we look at sectors, at the moment, under the veil of economic efficiency, but that's not fair to an investor who has a partial view on sectors, we are actually saying that those sectors that contributed least to the problem should decarbonize first, and those who contributed most should decarbonize last because it's not efficient for them to do it. That's not a fair and just transition as I see it. Those sectors that contributed most to the problem of climate change should be the first decarbonizing in the very same way that those countries that contributed most to climate change should be the first decarbonizing. And that leads you to the fact that coal, oil, gas, and a variety of other sectors, but in particular the fossil fuels, whose scope three downstream emissions really are the predominant cause of climate change, that they need to be first held into account as we did it on the Paris Line benchmarks. We're starting with the sectors that first um, contributed most to climate change, they first have to put in scope three emissions, then the ones that contributed second most and those who contributed least, they have most time until they have the proper scope three data, either reported by the company or estimated by vendor. Yeah, I, I mean, absolutely. So just to conclude, and you have kind of touched on this, but we always ask everyone, because this is a podcast geared towards students, what advice would you give us as we begin to shape our career within the sustainability space? So what I think I recommend every student to do is when you apply for the jobs, be keenly aware if this is a sales or advice job. That's number one. And that has nothing to do with how fancy a corporate building looks like. This has to do with who pays. Does the asset manager pay? or the asset owner pay, or maybe the regulator pay, or does the company pay? And if the company pays, you won't be paid yourself to make an accurate sustainability assessment. You will be paid to get the company more time, to uh, slightly greenwash here and there, to represent the company's views in the way that it would like to be represented, rather than in the way that might be scientifically accurate. So be keenly aware of that difference, and if possible, Find a job where the eventual payment comes from the buy side rather than the sell side. If you want to learn more, do consider uh, applying for PhD programs. I'm convinced that the MBA of the last decade is the PhD of tomorrow. Lots of people have MBAs now. It's not particularly deep, but if you actually have a PhD and you increase your depths, or double it in many cases, you can do a lot out of it. It's beautiful. And then if you want to discuss these points forward, uh, do feel free to add me on LinkedIn. I normally regularly discuss them in terms of my outreach activities. Um, as an academic here in Ireland, I'm a civil servant. Uh, and so very happy uh, to discuss this with society uh, anywhere. And so I hope that it was informative um, for this podcast and that 
uh, a good number of you um, will reflect maybe on it. And thank you very much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on.